behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and who holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field come out to devour. All you beasts of the fi- in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. These dogs, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let, us, uh, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. This is the word of the Lord. And as I said, we're going to get two sermons out of here. This is a two-part sermon. The first part, if you're going to, if you're going to uh, just label each of these two sections, what we read 1 to 8 and 9 to 12, which section would be the positive section and which one would be the negative one? Well, the positive one was the first one, wasn't it? It's not even close, isn't it? It's total, dramatically different. And you actually are, what we're going to see is this, this is comparing the work of the good shepherd of Israel the coming Messiah, at that point he didn't come yet, right? This is 700 years before Christ comes. Comparing it to the wicked shepherds. And as we always see in Scripture, even when we're looking at passages that are really only talking about bad shepherds and and, and wicked leaders and false shepherds, we're also just going to learn some really sweet things about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, We get the good first, though. Today we get to look at the good shepherd, the work of the good shepherd. Now, the first thing I want us to to see here, or to remember maybe, is that in in the work of Isaiah so far, we've seen a bunch of prophecies. We've seen a bunch of prophecies that talk about what will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, comes. And we've already seen in Isaiah that he's going to say, when the Messiah first comes, there will be some immediate gifts, immediate gifts that everyone who believes in him will enjoy. And then there will be future gifts that they all get to look forward to together and already and not yet. So since we're living after the Lord Jesus has come the first time, we get to experience a lot of those already gifts, this sweet forgiveness and love of God and reconciliation to him. But we also are looking forward to that future gifts that are secured by what he has done, but we're not experiencing quite yet. We've already seen um, that Isaiah has said this a number of, of, of times, and sometimes Isaiah sort of frames it as a pilgrimage. The people of God are called Zion. Zion's a city. How are we a city? Well, in some senses, we're the city of God already. Anybody who trusts in Christ is the city of God. And yet, we're also the city of God. Zion is on a pilgrimage And where are we going to go? Zion, (laughs) the city of God. We're looking forward to the eternal kingdom in the eternal city of Zion. 
We've already seen Isaiah promises that's going to be a city, a city without any borders. It's going to extend all the way to the ends of the earth. And he's already promised that the Messiah of Israel, remember this is 700 years before Christ comes, will save a remnant. A, a group, not everyone in the people of Israel, but those who trust in him. He'll save them. And then he's going to add a whole bunch of people from all the nations who trust in him. He's going to make them one people. And they will immediately be his, but they will be waiting for his second coming. And this passage, I hope you can see, this passage is asking the question, what should the remnant do while they wait what are we supposed to do while we wait? Or put it differently, while we're on this pilgrimage, waiting for the Lord Jesus to return and bring us to the new heavenly Jerusalem, what are we supposed to do while we wait? He's our shepherd. He shepherds us while we're, while we're there. He's not waiting for us to come and, and then he'll be with us. He's with us as we do that. But what are we supposed to do while we wait? And that is our first question, our first point. We're going to get that from the first two verses. I'm just going to read them again to get them fresh in our minds. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Thus far God's word. So what are the remnants supposed to do while they wait, right? They're already Zion. They've already, he's already gathered a bunch of people from all tongues and tribes and nations and made them part of Zion, the, the people of God, the city of God, the bride of God, the family of God, all these analogies. And what are we supposed to do while we wait? Well, first of all, we see that these people look like the Messiah, did you notice that? They look like the Messiah. In the previous chapters, we've seen descriptions of what the Messiah is going to look like. He's going to love righteousness. And so these are descriptions of the Messiah's character, the Lord Jesus. And why is that? Because they have his spirit. We already saw that in Isaiah. He's giving us his spirit. But they also know that they are not saved by being like him. We know that you don't get to be part of God's people by acting like Christ because we are good enough or we look like Christ. We saw this in Isaiah 53. God's people have so many sins. And how is it that he forgives them? Well, because he puts their sins on Jesus. And Jesus is punished instead of them. And then he takes Jesus' perfect record and he gives it to his people. So nobody who's part of Zion or the church or the family of God, the children of God, nobody is that because they act like Jesus. But after they become his children by trusting in him, they start acting like him. Because he doesn't just save them from the penalty of sin. He doesn't just save people from hell. He does. He doesn't just forgive people. He does. He also rescues us from sin. He gives us eyes to see sin as an enemy that we need to be rescued from. Not something that we want to keep doing and just, just yet be forgiven for. He saves us not just from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. That's why when we sang Amazing Grace, 
new eyes. Once we're blind, now we see. Our chains are now gone. We are now freed from the power of sin. And so they look like the Messiah. And what are the two ways that are noted that we look or to look like the Messiah? First, he says, keep justice and do righteousness. Keep justice and do righteousness. And what does that mean? It just means doing what is right. Later on, we're going to see, in, and we read already, but it says uh, that it does the things that, that please the Lord. Do righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, why is this such a good thing that the Lord's people, who are waiting for him, that we do righteousness? Well, this, this as our instructions, actually frees us from the fear of the future. Freed from needing to control the future. Because the Lord is the Lord of the present and the future. Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. This is a really sweet gift, particularly to a man or a woman who feels like they're in a no-win situation, where they're in a situation where they're in this world anyways, it feels like they cannot win. Maybe they are sick or they have been given a, a, a prognosis that is very terrible and they've been given a couple of months to live. The world might think, well, we gotta do all that we can and we gotta worry that we cannot save our own lives. Or maybe it's somebody who cannot save his or her own job because, uh, because it looks like they're gonna have to lose their job because of righteousness or because of some other reason. But the believer in the Lord Jesus is freed from worrying about those things. And now, you can just concern yourself with what is the right thing to do? What would please the Lord? Not so that I can be saved, but what would my Father in heaven like me to do? What would please him? And then just do the next right thing, the next right thing. You leave the future to God. We're not called to do things to control the future. Now, planning for the future is part of what righteousness looks like. But, we're, but God does not require us to be omniscient, to know the future and be able to control it. He doesn't require us to be omnipotent, to be all-powerful. We have one person in that relationship who is omnipotent, and that's God, and that's sufficient. We are just called to simply just act like my children. I will take care of the future. Don't fear what men or women think of you. Just honor me. And we can live lives now that we have the Spirit of God, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, live lives where you do pursue righteousness. Now, why would he say justice here? Did you notice that? Justice. What's the big deal with justice? Justice is, is like righteousness, but especially when there is no gain to be had by being righteous. Spe specifically when you, there's actually something to be lost by being righteous. The scripture talks a lot about righteousness and justice when it comes to, for instance, the poor. That a man will do the right thing for a person even if there's no gain in it. Even if that person can't harm him for being mean, he's still going to be kind. Even if that person can't reward him for being kind, he's still going to be kind. Because it's 
not about what that person thinks and can reward. It is because the Lord loves these actions, and so he is going to do them. Now, while we are in this pilgrimage, our pursuit of righteousness is going to be mixed with repentance. For us now, pursuing righteousness while we wait for the Lord Jesus means repenting. It means that we'll often fall. This is what it means to pursue righteousness. When you fall, you repent, where the word of God will correct you, and then you confess your sin to God, ask him to forgive you, and also ask him to cleanse you, and you continue pursuing righteousness. We are freed to pursue righteousness because the Lord is in control of the future. He is holding on to us. We're free to just do what is righteous and then repent when we don't. He also mentions, so he says justice and righteousness. Then he mentions the Sabbath. He actually mentions it a few times in this, in this chapter. It's quite a theme. He keeps the Sabbath. And a summary of what the Sabbath meant to the people of Israel is that you would trust God enough to rest in him. And so we have the Old Testament people of God had this law to rest on the Sabbath, seventh day, Sabbath, Sabbath is seventh day. It was the day of rest. And the first time we actually see people keeping the Sabbath is the slaves who were freed from Egypt when Israel was slaves under Pharaoh's terrible hand in Egypt for 400 years. God rescues them out of Egypt as he promised to do, and they're in the wilderness, and God insists, now you're going to keep the Sabbath. Six days you shall labor, and the Sabbath you shall not do any work. This would have been absolutely shocking for the Israelite slaves who left Pharaoh in Egypt. How many days off a month do you think he gave them? A big fat zero. And here he's saying, I am now your master. Pharaoh's not. I give you rest. Now, you can rest assured, pardon the pun, you can rest assured Pharaoh got a lot of rest. His Hebrew slaves, none. And God insisted. And so, part of the, the ceremonial laws and the things that God said, I want you to know that I am your master and I'm a master who gives rest, is that you will take the seventh day off and no one in the country is to do any work. No work. Now, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath. He's fulfilled the Sabbath. He has freed us from our labor, from our slavery. And there's two things that the Bible talks about in terms of Jesus fulfilling the Sabbath for us, okay? He is our rest. There's two things, two things he gives us rest from. The first thing that the Lord Jesus gives you rest from is sin, and you can picture this as, as God rescuing the people of Israel from slavery to Pharaoh. And God likens sin and the slavery to sin, he likens it to Pharaoh as a wicked, terrible master. Sin is a terrible master. We follow sin as it if it's a master. Jesus says, anybody who sins is a slave to sin. You did it because you felt compelled to do it. Like it was, you were sort of being pushed to do it and you're pushed by your own desires. And so God says that the Messiah's responsibility is to free people from slavery to sin. And so we're reminded, if your faith is in Christ, 
and you are tempted to sin, you can preach to yourself, I am no longer a slave to that wicked master. Sin and the devil and evil does not love me. It's not enslaving me for my good. It keeps telling me it is and then destroying me. It is no longer my master. I have a much better master. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm no longer a slave to sin and I will not act like it. And when I feel myself acting like a slave to sin, giving in to sin as if it's forcing me and and enslaving me, I'm glad when I have brothers and sisters in Christ who will tell me, Derek, that's the old you. You are no longer a slave to sin. Christ is your master. He has given you rest from sin. There's a second thing that the Bible talks about Jesus being our Sabbath rest from. Jesus fulfills the law. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, when God created us, he created us as as people who were to glorify him and to enjoy him, to know him. He created us as his subjects, as his servants. And he gave us his law. That law had never been kept. There was instructions given to humanity that had never been actually perfectly kept. We couldn't look at the law of God and say, check, that's been done. And yet the Lord Jesus, as we've already seen as we've been going through Isaiah, he essentially put his people's name on his running, uh, his running uniform as he's running the race. And he puts our name on his chest and he keeps the law instead of us. Up until that point, somebody, the, Lord, uh, the Lord could hear Satan say, look, you, your servants haven't even kept the law yet. Look, they haven't even done what you've asked them yet. The law is unfulfilled. But now, since the Lord Jesus has come, that accusation makes even less sense because the law has been fulfilled. Jesus Christ came as a servant to keep God's law instead of us. So now, dear Christian, if your faith is in Christ, it counts as if you have kept the law. You have fulfilled it. You have done what is required. Not because you've done it, but somebody else did it and counted it to your account. And so in that way, God, Christ gives us rest from keeping the law in order to save ourselves. But remember, we're saved from keeping the law to save ourselves. And now we're free to keep the law because we're not slaves of sin. It's a different way that we keep the law, a different purpose And so now Jesus fulfills the Sabbath, but he also transforms it. What day of the week is it today? Is it the seventh day? Is it the seventh day of the week today? Not a trick question. It's the first day of the week. It's not Saturday, it's Sunday. Why now are we worshiping? Why is God's people, why are we worshiping on the first day of the week instead of the seventh day of the week? What happened on the first day of the week, friends? What happened? the first day of the week, what happened? Jesus rose from the dead. And now, instead of celebrating the Sabbath, we celebrate the Lord's Day. But we still keep the Sabbath together in that sense. We gather together once a week at least, but God gathers his family once a week regularly. And what do we do? We preach the Sabbath. What does that mean? We preach that Christ has fulfilled the law in our behalf. 
We come together as a family of God to hear the freedom, the rest, the Sabbath that God has given. Those two things. Dear Christian, you're not a slave to sin anymore. We come to tell that to each other. We come to sing that into each other's ears. Christ is the Sabbath. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Quit acting like it. You're a child, not an enemy of God. And we also preach and sing and read and pray the Sabbath into each other's ears and saying, the law is fulfilled, dear Christian. There's no condemnation because Christ is your righteousness. We turn our, our, each other's eyes and ears and minds and hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. We keep the Sabbath. The, the laws for the Sabbath in the Old Covenant were very meticulous. Very meticulous. If you see the, the wilderness generation right after they left Egypt, there were some really strict rules that like, why is God being so strict about this? Gathering sticks and all, it's just don't do that. But he was making a point. I give you rest. And dear friends, when we gather together, it is to be meticulous about the Sabbath. It is to be meticulous. And what do we mean by meticulous about the Sabbath? That we insist that no one acts as if we add to Christ's work. We insist that nothing other than the gospel is shared. No one preaches a slightly different gospel. Yes, Christ worked for your salvation and you, 99 Christ and one you, 1% you. No, we are meticulous about this. Christ and Christ alone is your salvation. And if anybody stands up here and says anything different, Remove that person as a leader. We are meticulous. We preach Christ's work to save us. No mixture of our work with Christ's. Only, only, only God. But we're also very careful to insist that Christ is the Lord of holiness and that he does lead his people in freedom from slavery to sin. We gather together each week, dear friends, dear Christians, we gather together to preach the Sabbath, that Christ is our Sabbath, and we hold fast to him, the sure and steady anchor. We hold fast to the gospel. This is why we gather every, every Sunday. If your kids ask you, why do we have to go to church? Oh, we used to be slaves, and we're so prone to thinking that we're slaves, that we need to be reminded, gathered, God says, gather the children, gather my children every single week so that I can remind them that they're no longer slaves to sin and they're not slaves to the law, that Christ has kept it for them and he has rescued us. And so when your kids or your neighbors or somebody says, why do I go to church? Why do you go to church? Because I want to hold fast to my Sabbath, Christ I know how, how, how prone I am to wander, to trust in my own work, to make God love me. Or to think that sin is acceptable. And so I need my eyes fixed on Christ, my Sabbath. Now, why are we going to pursue righteous works? He says, for soon my salvation will come. Did you see that? He says, do this, for soon my salvation will come, verse 1. 
keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Because Christ has promised that when he returns, one of the great gifts is that he will bring us to an eternal kingdom of righteousness. The Christian's hope is, yes, to be with God, to be without pain or without sorrow, but also one of the things that a Christian looks forward to about the new heavens and earth is that it will be only righteousness, only righteousness all the time. And so, I'm just going to quote John in 1 John chapter 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that's Jesus, we shall be like him, that means perfectly without sin, because we shall see him as he is. And then listen to what John says in 1 John 2 verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes, so everybody who hopes in Christ's return and the righteousness that comes Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Those who long for the righteous kingdom of God, pursue it now. Not so that we can gain it. Because it shows that we are looking forward to a kingdom of righteousness. That we treasure heaven because it is a righteous place. And so we treasure righteousness now. And whenever, and it is often, we fall, we ask the Lord to cleanse us and we continue to pursue righteousness. Our second point is this. Why outcasts who join themselves to the Lord will never fear being sectioned off from God's people. Why outcasts who join themselves to the Lord will never fear being sectioned off from God's people. Let's look at uh, verses 3 to 5 to to, uh, see these things. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Thus far God's word. What? Here's some trivia question. It's not trivia. Trivia means it's not important. But, a question, a little quiz from the Old Testament, testing your Old Testament knowledge. What did foreigners and eunuchs have in common in the Old Testament? What did they have? In the church that was waiting for Christ's first coming, what did foreigners and eunuchs, that means non-Jewish people, what did they have in common? Both were sectioned off, at, off and not full participants in the temple. In fact, there were so many rules. If you read in in Leviticus, there's so many rules about people who were excluded from these the the, the temple services. People who were ceremonially unclean. So if you had a discharge of blood or of bodily fluid or if you had uh, a disease or if you had touched a dead body. And it was also true. So you were not able to participate in these services, the temple. It was possible for some foreigners to join Israel, to become Israelites. And it didn't require Israelite DNA or blood. It had nothing to do with skin color. It had nothing to do with facial features. It had nothing to do with anything like that. We had foreigners who joined the people of Israel. We saw Rahab. Rahab was from Jericho. Ruth, Ruth, where was Ruth from? 
Ruth was from Moab. We also have Uriah, Bathsheba's wife. Where was he from? He was a Hittite, right? So we have foreigners who joined themselves to the people of God and actually just became Israelites. It was possible for some foreigners to just join Israel, join the nation, join the family. And yet, while they were waiting to do that, they were treated as guests rather than family members in the, in the nation of Israel, in the family of God, in the household of God. Now, why would God do that? It seems, from our perspective, it might seem cruel. Why are these people with diseases and, and deformities and, and, and people who have, you know, even if somebody had just buried their father and touched a dead body, they, they couldn't go to the temple. See, why would you do this? What is God saying here? Now, first thing we need to realize is that this didn't actually separate them from being God's people. All the sacrifices and ceremonies that happened in the temple, all the promises of God about his love and forgiveness and grace and kindness, all those things applied to them. But there was this symbolism that the temple was reserved for the people who are actually part of the family of God and who actually were without sickness and disease. Why would he do that? Because God was making a wonderful, beautiful point. Because the temple symbolized, symbolized the kingdom of heaven. It symbolized the new garden of Eden, the eternal kingdom of God, the new heavens and earth. And what God was saying is this. There will be no disease allowed in heaven. I will banish it. There will be no deformity allowed in heaven. I will banish it. There will be allowed no, now we'll understand this, no foreigner allowed in heaven. Why would he say that? Because to be saved doesn't make you just a guest in God's family. There's no just forgiven strangers who go to heaven. Everyone who trusts in Jesus is a son or daughter of God. And this is what these things in the temple, these restrictions were teaching people. There's really only two positions. You can be an enemy of God or a child of God. And God was saying these things very clearly in the temple. And so you could see a eunuch would have had a, had a deformity. And you could see that maybe every, every, every year this, there's this, this Israelite man who's a eunuch. And he's forbidden from entering full into this, this assembly and into the temple ceremonies. But he would go up to Jerusalem with the people of God and they're singing the Psalms of Ascent as they go to Jerusalem. And he knows that as they get to Jerusalem, as they're going into the temple, he knows that he's going to have to be left behind, that his brothers and sisters are going to continue on and he's going to be left behind. And he wishes he could join them, but he's so happy, so happy at what this symbolizes. He symbolizes that there is no sickness or deformity in heaven. He's looked forward to that because he gets that too. The same thing is true with somebody who's not yet an Israelite. They also maybe would, would go up to Jerusalem with the people of God. And they know that there, there's going to be a time, they're going to be sectioned off for a period of time. And this is teaching them. They, they wish they could go, but they're glad for what it symbolizes. They're glad that it symbolizes that there is no strangers of God. No, just guests in heaven. Everyone who God saves is a full heir. 
And this is what these things are saying. And you might, you might see here as well that these two things being a eunuch, sort of a deformity, right? And also being somebody who's not naturally part of the family of God in that, not, a, not an Israelite. That's kind of like, like the A to Z of the things that weren't allowed in the temple service, right? And so what essentially God is saying here is this. It's like an it all-encompassing A to A and Z and everything in between. He says this. No one, no one who joins himself to my people, no one should ever say, God will surely separate me from his people. Because you know what? He knew that we would feel that way. He knew that his children Maybe they come from a Jewish background. Maybe they come from a different background. But he knew that those who would trust in the Lord Jesus would from time to time look at their life, look at themselves and saying, God's definitely going to give up on me. God is definitely going to cut me off. I definitely, he's not going to hold on to me. He knew he would. And dear brothers and sisters, if your faith is in Christ, you can say to yourself, God forbade me from thinking that way. You don't say, oh, no, 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 I'll be good enough. No, no, no. You say, God forbade anyone who trusts in Christ, who has Christ as their Sabbath. He forbade us from thinking, God will surely let go of me. He has promised that everyone whom he saves, he saves to the uttermost. He holds fast to us. That brings us to our third point, which we'll get from verses 6 to 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and who holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others also besides those to him, besides those already gathered. Thus far God's word. So what would be the point? Why would we want to be in the temple? What was the point of the temple? Now you might say, oh, the point of the temple was the sacrifices, there's these offerings and the ceremonies, but you would be wrong. <laughs> That's not the point. That's not the goal of, them, of the temple. Those were the, the means to the end, the actual, the actual goal of the temple. We see here, he, he calls it a house of prayer. The wonderful thing about the sacrifices and the wonderful thing about the temple is it was the ability of people to enjoy being in God's presence and pray to him. And he talks about their sacrifices and burnt offerings being accepted. There are no sacrifices and burnt offerings being offered anymore because the Lord Jesus Christ offered the final one. His death paid for all of our sins. No more sacrifices necessary. And the reason he did that, dear Christian, is so you could be forgiven, yes. But that's not it. It's so that you could enjoy a relationship with God. That you could come into God's presence with assurance. 
that you could pray to God, not as some stranger talking to a strange king, but as his children. This is the point. This is the thing that the temple was teaching the people of God and all the sacrifices. And this is why the Bible talks about Christ being the new temple, him being the sacrifice. And the point is that we who trust in Christ, who have him as our redeemer, that we get to pray. And he hears us. He hears us as our Father. We get to enjoy God. We get God, and we get God as our Father. Former outcasts brought near the throne of God to enjoy fellowship with Him. In the book of Acts, Jordan read for us Acts chapter 8, you have a man who is reading from Scripture. He is a foreigner. Where is he from? He's from Ethiopia. He's not, he's not from uh, Jerusalem. Okay, so he's a foreigner, but he's also something else. There's something, some other description of him. What else is he? He's a eunuch. He is both of these things that Isaiah says these people are going to be joined and have full access. Next question. What book of the Bible is he reading as he's on his journey when Philip comes up to him? What, what book of the Bible is he reading? He's reading Isaiah. And so this is the this is the sign that Isaiah's prophecy had come true. And so this man asks Philip to explain to him the gospel from Isaiah 53. And of course, <laughs> of course, Philip is happy to do that. The man believes on Christ. And what does he ask to do? What does he say he wants to do right away? He wants to have happen right away. What does he say? Where's the water? There's some water. Let's get baptized. And what is baptism other than a naming ceremony? And Jesus said, go into all the nations and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dear friends, for faith, if you have faith in Christ, you are given a name better than just being a son or daughter of Israel or of Abraham or of Jacob. You are given the Lord Jesus' name. That means you can approach God's throne, not in your own name. You can pray to God, even right after you sin grievously, you can immediately go to the throne of God, not in your own name. You get to go in Christ's name. And knowing all that you know about Christ... Do you think that name's good enough to go to God and ask him to forgive you? Of course it is. Dear friends, never, ever, 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 ever be tempted to approach the throne of God, to come to him in prayer in your own name. Based on who you are, based on what you've done, you have been given a name much greater than that. The Lord Jesus Christ gives you his own name to approach God's throne in prayer, which is why we pray in Christ's name. Father, hear this based on Christ's record, his achievements. He's given them to me. And so hear my prayer based on Christ's name. And we might wonder whether our own record is good enough, and we would be right to wonder that. The answer is certainly no. But how long and how good do you think Christ's record is? 
It is perfect, and it will be good forever. Our last point we're going to get from chapter 56, verse 8, and is this. The good shepherd gathers one flock by his one sacrifice for their sins. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather others yet to him. Besides those already gathered, Israel, and, and this is talking about Israel's irresponsible leaders. He's contrasting them to Israel's uh, con, uh, irresponsible leaders. I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And here we have the good shepherd is gathering one flock. The Lord Jesus is the good shepherd. He's a good shepherd of guilty sheep. We already saw in 53. Anybody who is his sheep is somebody who's actually guilty. And he pays for their sin with his blood. He pays for them with his blood. John 10, verse 4, Jesus is obviously quoting from here, obviously mentioning this. He says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as my father knows me, and I know my father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Does this not sound very much too, too, uh, similar to verse 8? Let's read verse 16 of John, uh, John chapter 10. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. How did they become his sheep? He died for their sins. Why are they not outcasts anymore? Why does God not consider them outcasts anymore? The answer is that Christ was already cast out. On the cross, he was cut off. He was damned. He was treated as an enemy. So that those who naturally are, which is every single person, Jew and Gentile alike, all of us are naturally God's enemies, naturally outcasts. But because the shepherd was cut off, we never will be cut off. We can wait with confidence. It's one thing to begin a long journey thinking, I'm not sure if this will ever work. I'm not sure if I'll actually reach the destination. What happens if I get lost? What happens if I die on the way or if I just become unable to do that? That might dissuade you from persevering, wouldn't it? Or even starting on that journey. Why even bother if it's likely that I'll never even finish? That phrase, hold fast, is repeated a few times in these couple of chapters, isn't it? Who is it? Who is it that are considered God's children who are forgiven and who will never be cut off? Those who hold fast to the Sabbath, Christ who hold fast to the covenant. But it's actually greater than that. Let's read John chapter 10, verse 27 to 30. Remember, he's, he's already coming. He's, 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 uh, John is referring, or Jesus is referring to Isaiah chapter 56 here. John chapter 27, verse 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So dear friends, if you are a Christian, it means you are trusting in Christ. You are holding fast to the gospel. But what is more true 
is that he is holding you fast. Our grips are not perfect. We are weak, we are sinful, we get easily distracted, but not so with the Lord Jesus. He holds us fast so that we do hold fast with the gospel. So what do we do while we're waiting? While we're waiting for the Lord Jesus to return, we do pursue righteousness, not in order to save ourselves, but because we love righteousness now. We've been saved from sin, and we look forward to a home where righteousness and only righteousness dwells. We also hold fast to the Sabbath, to Christ as our Sabbath. We insist that Christ's work alone will save us. And we also insist that Christ has rescued us from the power of sin. And we do this with confidence. We wait with confidence, knowing that we will never be cut off, never be sectioned off from God's people. Never will he have a gift to give to them and we just are left out of it. Because we don't inherit based on our own name, do we? Whose name do we inherit based on? the Lord Jesus, and so he will hold us fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a Savior who can hold on to us a lot better than we can hold on to you. And we thank you that we can come to you in Christ's name, not our own. We thank you for that wonderful promise that all the symbolism of the temple uh, preached, that in your kingdom there are no strangers. There are no guests. There are no foreigners. There are only your children. And that also there, there is no sickness, no pain, no death, no deformity, none of the curse of sin. And that you will never cast us off because Christ was cut off on the cross. Father, I pray that you would make us a people who hold fast to our confession to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to cling to him and to insist on him as our Sabbath. We pray that you would, uh, for those of us who are wrestling with sin, or maybe not even wrestling, but giving in, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that Christ is the Sabbath from sin, that we are no longer slaves, but we are now your children. And for those of us who are wrestling with confidence that you have loved us and forgiven us, Father, would you remind us that Christ is the Sabbath, that he has fulfilled the law so that we no longer keep the law in order to be saved, but as a celebration and recognition that we have been. I pray that you would do these things in us, in Jesus' name, amen.